Blog Talk Radio. And recovery. This is Catherine, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Jean and Amanda. Hi, ladies. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hi. So, I need a drink. It's a common phrase, a catchphrase that people use to sum up a bad day, and I, I think it was my favorite phrase for a long time. And the culture really is rife with advice that a quote-unquote nice glass of wine is all it will take to feel better about whatever challenges life dishes up. So when we're faced with big health issues like anxiety, depression, or other mental illnesses, physical illness or other changes in our physical health, or just stress caused by any social or familial changes or losses, it can seem like an easy fix to pick up a drink to kind of, quote, take the edge off. And as alcoholics, this response can become our go-to, and we come to depend on alcohol to deal with our problems, and that becomes a vicious cycle. Our bodies and brains are stressed from processing the alcohol as we stuff our emotions deeper and deeper down inside and as we become dependent on the drink to fix us. So we find great freedom from that dependence and sobriety, but it can be daunting to realize that even though we're now sober, we still have the same issues we had before, you know, those that we sought relief from in the bottle, the same anxiety, the same depression, the same hormonal changes, the same trauma. And on tonight's show, our guests, Megan and Denise, will share their experiences about how they found new and better ways to deal with their lives. From menopause to dual diagnoses, we can move on from self-medicating to proper self-care. And this just seems like such a big topic, and we're tackling some of life's more complicated issues like mental illness. So I just want to start off by noting that we're not doctors. We're all just sharing our stories and what has helped us in our sobriety journeys. And, you know, good self-care can include proper and regular treatment and care by a physician and may include medication properly prescribed and administered by a doctor. Um, But our experiences have shown us that when we enter recovery, we can take better care of our physical and mental health than the bottle ever did. So that's just laying the groundwork there. Um, This is a wide-ranging topic. It's both huge in scope and deeply personal as well. So I was just sharing with the ladies as we were preparing for the call that I have to say I'm feeling a little bit nervous. This is this is such a personal topic, so I'll kick it off here. Um, I can share with you that I thought that I was broken because of my anxiety. I, I really thought that I just was built with a screw loose. I thought this is sort of a nervy thing to say, but I thought that God built me wrong, and I have I have done and had done before I got sober a lot of talk therapy about my complex PTSD issues from 
a variety of trauma, kind of big T and little T traumas that I've had. Um, But the first thing I'll say is that now in sobriety, it's so clear how much worse my drinking made my anxiety. And for me, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I think that now I'm noticing how connected my anxiety is to any physical stuff that I have going on, if if I'm hungry or tired, for example, and hangovers would just send my body into overdrive trying to heal, which I think would just feel like a stress response, and that would cause me to want to drink. Um, And then not to mention the 3 a.m. panicked wake-ups. Remember those? Those good times. So the first and the Good, good time. Um, so the first and essential thing was to remove the alcohol from the equation. And I think I just want to start there because for me, nothing was ever going to get better, least of all my anxiety, if I didn't do that, um, which seemed counterintuitive because it seemed like I was using the drink to help my anxiety, but it was really hurting. And any progress or any you know, healing what's going to happen. Um, and, and to be perfectly honest, I used the anxiety as a reason for drinking for a long time. So it was important for me to get honest about the role drinking was actually playing in terms of causation of my alcoholism for me. So, you know, that's, that's a lot from me at the moment. So I think, Jean, you had um, some things to share on this topic as well. I do, I do, and I, I want to thank you, Catherine, for bravely taking on this topic because, and, and all our guests tonight too, because this is very difficult to talk about. I, I feel like I'm like showing you my stretch marks right now. <laughs> like some things are better kept under wraps, but I think it is important to talk about it. And I know it would have come as a relief to me to have hear, heard people speak honestly about it in the past. So. Um, if you had asked me while I was drinking what I was, if I was self-medicating, I probably could have said yes, but I would have been wrong about what I was self-medicating because I told myself that I was um, self-medicating for stress and to help right. me sleep. And because I was so stressed out uh, that I, you know, I work, work, work all day and I need to relax at the end of the day, take the edge off the stress and make sure I have a good night's sleep. So that was my excuse for the cycle of drinking in the evening. And, you know, as that disease progressed, it became a larger, it was like afternoon and evening. (laughs) Um, But I think that I was in denial about, not only about my drinking, but to me anxiety was a word that I spat out as a criticism of someone because I thought anxiety was for weak people. Stress is for strong people, and I was strong. Anxiety was what weak people got that kept them from doing big things all day, but because I, you know, I, I did big things, I had stress. So it was like I earned stress by ignoring anxiety. And I think because, you know, as I was functioning within the parameters of addiction and alcoholism, I was really sort of functioning in a, in a, in a realm that was all about outward appearances. And the only thing mm-hmm. to me that was real was how I looked to the outside, or what other people saw me do or were aware of me doing. So really I can see now that I valued myself so little 
that I did not acknowledge anything that wasn't validated by someone else seeing it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Mhm. And and so now I am, you know, now I can look back on that and see that um I think I'm a little braver now acknowledging that acknowledging my addiction and the disease of alcoholism allowed me to apply a solution to it. And and seeing the good results of that gave me the courage to say, hmm, how how differently would I feel if I got brave about addressing this so-called stress issue that I have? And what if I really looked into what is general anxiety disorder and how do I fit into that? And why do doctors keep offering me anti-anxiety medications when I go in for hormones or something, you know? Why do they keep <laughs> identifying this, these stupid doctors, you know? So I started to actually get brave about calling it by its name and looking at it and learning what behavior modification techniques might help anxiety. And sure enough, you know, I fit the parameters and the behavior mods really do help. And so the important thing is that I've learned to value myself enough to acknowledge that what I feel is real and I don't have to have someone else see it for it to be real. A care, Self-care is about actually acknowledging my my own experience as a value and as of meaning and that is the greatest gift that recovery has brought to me um so i do two things to help with my anxiety the probably one of the best behavior mod techniques i use is something called one two three which is uh it brings you back into the present so you think of one thing you're seeing two things you're hearing three things you're feeling three sensations so it might be the softness of my sweater against my skin the chair under my bum the feet my feet on the floor and it just you do it over and over again until you really pull yourself back into the present because anxiety is all about projecting yourself into um future um anxiety about the future fear of the future dread of the future so i pull myself back into the moment and that's really helpful um i could go on but we'll talk a little bit more about it later i also wanted to mention one other thing really quickly that i've had the courage to face and i Having done some research, I think it's important to mention in tonight's discussion, and um, and that is, uh, I've I've had this revelation that this this soothing behavior that I've done my whole life is actually a form of OCD, and in researching it, I've learned that it's a very common form of OCD amongst people that struggle with addiction, and that the stats show about 25% of people with this have addiction, and they believe that that is underreported because of the shame of OCD and the shame of addiction that both things are underreported. But it's the it's the behavior of either scratching at your skin or picking at your skin or pulling at your hair for comfort. So you see people that will pick the hair off their arms or pick their eyelashes or their eyebrows or maybe pull some hair out of their head or scratch um at uh, at their skin for comfort. So I won't go into to how that OCD presented in my life. But I can tell you, and this is hard to say because it's embarrassing, it's kind of gross, people don't like to talk about it, but it's extremely common. There's very simple behavior modifications to help for it. And again, having the courage that recovery brought me to be honest with myself and to say, hey, all these things aren't separate. In fact, they're all connected and it was like dominoes. As soon as as soon as I started to deal with one, I could deal with the next and deal with the next. And it it's just brought so much healing into my life. So my hope is that by 
breathlessly speaking about it with you tonight, that someone listening is, is hearing relief and just knowing that they're not alone in in some things that they may have felt were odd about them. Or as you said, Catherine, which just took my breath away, that you were made wrong. I really thought that too. I just thought, man, I'm a throwback. You know, what? poor God, he's, he's working so hard and here I'm a dud, you know. <laughs> to just realize these things are very quite simple to deal with and and it's so much so much comfort comes from just being honest about it and facing it because when you call it by its name you can start to work on the solution. Yeah, and that's so, that's so empowering, Jean. I, I re- this is Catherine. I, I really appreciate you sharing all of that and that just so much resonated with me, this idea of, you know, keeping up appearances and then I loved how you said that that the outside appearances were what was real. Um, because I think when you're talking about mental illness, for example, you know, you can look, you know, like a, you know, just a typical person on the outside and what's happening on the inside, you know, the idea of, oh, anxiety, that's just, you know, like you said, a weakness or something. Whereas I was just doing this today. As a matter of fact, I I hadn't had any anxiety for a couple of weeks. I was feeling good about it. And then all of a sudden it starts buzzing through my body. Just like my body just takes off and, you know, the heart is racing and the chest is constricting and my whole, all of my nerve endings feel like they're buzzing. And so when you were talking about pulling back into the body with the one, two, three techniques, that's a little scary for me because what I'm learning is like to sit in my body and instead of trying to run away from the anxiety Mm -hmm. saying, okay, hello, here it is. The the Buddhists have this technique where you just say this too, this too, and Mm -hmm. I consent. And, like, that doesn't feel great. And when we've been using things like alcohol to kind of run away, um, Mm -hmm. that can seem really like an appealing path. But, in fact, if you just sit with it, um, that's amazing. It can calm you down. I, I have found there's a lot of power sometimes in just saying out loud, I'm feeling a lot of anxiety right now. I'm 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 this is taking I'm absorbing this into my body and I and I I'll speak it. I might be alone in the room even and I'll say, Okay, I'm feeling anxiety right now, what's causing this? Mm-hmm. And um and just to say, you know, I think sometimes it's a person will walk in the room and I'll start to feel my chest constrict and I realize, Oh boy, I've got a lot of you know, worry about how I'm going to interact with that person or how they perceive me. And I, I have to start doing a lot of self-talk at that point. And Catherine, right. I have something else during a, um, a panic attack. I do I do have panic attacks at times. <coughs> and I have a, a TENS machine that goes on my forehead that I use when I have um, migraines. And as I said, I'm not a doctor, um, but this is, a, this is a non-prescription device that you can order online. So if you just search migraine... Um, TENS machine. It's just a little headband with a sensor on it, and it sends a bit of a current through the nerves and muscles in your head, and it gives relief from migraines. But I also use it during panic attacks because it just helps um, relieve my whole body. And um, and that's something I found really helpful too. And again, because it's something in the present that's real that you can really feel, it, it pulls you out of that mental projection that you're doing. So Right. And, and I think that's what when we... When we've talked about on the show, you know, our common triggers, halt, hungry, angry, lonely, mm-hmm. tired, um, those really can 
exacerbate any sort of um, response we might be having. That's true, yeah. So I'd like um, to you know, welcome our, our first guest. Um, was that somebody, Amanda, was that you? Yeah, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say, I've, um, the um, just listening to the two of you. I've never thought of myself as having anxiety, um, but just the description that you had. I've had one panic attack in my life, and that, um, and I it was pretty extreme. I called an ambulance on myself, but that was actually directly related to drinking. It was when I was drinking, um, and turns out that that was a sign that I was um, drinking too much. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time. But um, so I've I've never had anxiety. But when you one of you just described about the um, the tingling in your skin, I do. There there are times where I um it's, it's I guess it's not so much anxiety as to the point of an anxiety attack. But I and I also when you talked about like not recognizing or not knowing that you're actually maybe suffering from anxiety, there's times when I'm under a lot of stress, um, emotional stress that um, it's just like you described. Every nerve ending in my body feels like it's not on fire. I don't even know the sensation. It's a very strange sensation, but I I wonder if that's just, you know, um, you know the, a slight sign of anxiety for me because it's definitely at a, a time where um, I'm very much um, in doubt of where things are going. You know, it's when I'm very uncertain about the future and I'm uncomfortable and I'm, I'm consciously sitting in it, knowing that okay, you know, this too shall pass. Like I'm, it's during those moments when I can really feel it all over my body. So it helps me to just know that maybe I need to mention that to my doctor, you know, for um, you know when we talk about self care because it is something that happens. But I also seem to have the ability to get through it um, without you know too much anxiety. Um, but it's definitely uncomfortable at the time. Well, and that's, I think that's the main thing. I mean, you know, there's two things, this is Catherine, that I heard you say, Amanda, which is one, where drinking can actually produce, you know, your your body and your mind are in these hyper-aggravated states, so it can produce these kind of high-stress responses, and so... You know, we think that we're drinking to calm ourselves down, but we could actually be, you know, doing worse damage. And also, as as we know, alcohol is a depressant. So if anybody's suffering from clinical depression, you know, that's certainly not um, helping there. And then the other thing is what I hope everyone gets out of tonight's show is that we can get through these things. So even if we still have some of these situations to deal with. Um, And if our first response used to be, I need a drink, it doesn't have to be that anymore, and we can get through them. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. Like, that can be a great mantra. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd like to welcome our first guest, who is also familiar with having a dual diagnosis. So that's the clinical term for having both a mental illness and a substance abuse problem. Um, so I'd like to welcome Megan, and thank you for being here. Hi. Hi. You're Hi, welcome. So, <laughs> Hi. So, yeah, so glad you're here, and, and you're, you're really doing a great service tonight. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your dual diagnosis? Well, I, I have alcoholism. Um, I was on the show back in the fall about getting sober young, 
And I have bipolar 1 disorder, and um, <clears throat> I just kind of want to define that for you guys just because, like, I feel this, um, that bipolar is something that, like, is very, very misunderstood um, out of the mall, you know, and and yeah. it's like, like, people use the term bipolar very, very loosely, I've found, you know, like, oh, she's acting so bipolar, and um, I've heard that countless times and like it makes me laugh today because like that's not like that's not what it is and it, it's really it's defined by two different types of um two different different types of mental like status or status whatever you want however you want to say it and it's it's pretty much like a period of depression and then a period of mania there's no, like, there's no me being depressed in the morning and then at the end of the day, I'm manic. Like, that's, you know, that's what the term bipolar people use it. You know, oh, she, you know, she's, he or she is acting bipolar. No, they're not. Because, like, when I'm in a depression, I'm in a depression, you know. And when I'm manic, I am flying high, um, you know, without substances, mind you. And, um I just kind of want to define it to begin just because I feel like it's very, very misunderstood. It's it's unfortunate that it's used so loosely, but, you know, what can I do? Yeah, I think that's really helpful, Megan. And um, so would a, do the periods of depression or mania last for extended periods of time? Um, well, in my experience, um I was in a depression from, like, November of 2009 until February of 2010, roughly. Um, I was misdiagnosed, and they thought I had depression and anxiety, so the only reason why I got out of it was being prescribed an antidepressant, which um, I know many bipolar people who take them, but for my my illness, I cannot. Um you know, and I'm not a doctor to ever say to anyone what they can and cannot take. But for me, with my bipolar, I cannot take antidepressants because I went into a full-blown manic episode that lasted from, like, February slash March, I would say, um, until June. So <laughs> they can last for, like, two weeks to, like, never-ending unless you get help. Um, and, and I think me, it, I it would know. be... I'm, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, I think it would be no. helpful also to just describe a little bit about what mania means, just because it's sure. a little bit of an esoteric term. So just in case yeah, anybody's no, listening, it's no, so it familiar. Sense. No, it doesn't, it, no, one under, no one knows really. It's um pretty much, um, I've I've actually talked with professionals before. I did a little mini internship for one of my courses at school, and, um, and I sat with this, um, He's like the intake guy for all of the psych patients of the hospital. And I sat with him for like an hour. We had the amazing conversation. And he said that he's done research on it. And it's pretty much like you're on um, cocaine or methamphetamines without being on them. And and it's, you know, usually, at least for me, my mania, I I blow all my money. Like I'll go and spend a ton of money with no care. You you don't really have a sense of um, what sense of like obligations. There's no sense of consequences for your actions. You're just like very euphoric, 
um, like everything's happy, everything's awesome, and like it's like some certain people like I've read about it, and like it's different different for everybody, but like there like there's a whole list online of like symptoms and it's like euphoria, like um, like hypersexuality is one of them. I, I you can see that in a film. There's a movie about it, and one of the characters is very into that. But, but like, it's pretty much you're flying high without being on any on anything. You're just your your brain is overproducing whatever chemicals that make you feel like like you're on top of the world. It's actually awesome, mm-hmm. but I can't be in that state of mind today. You know, <laughs> it's right. a lot of. A lot of people go off their meds to go be manic again, unfortunately, and it ends up with bad results. Right. So when did you kind of first feel the symptoms, and how did that kind of coincide with your drinking career, I guess I'll say? Yeah. Um, Well, for me, like, I went into college back in 2008, and I was like, pretty fine but usually with mental illness like unless um unless it's like child childhood uh schizophrenia that's the only mental illness that comes on when you're really 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 young but usually mental illnesses don't show their face until you're between like 18 and 25 um so for me I was 19 when I started realizing that Number one, my my drinking was not normal, um, and number two, I just didn't feel okay in my skin. And in like, I remember calling my dad one night when I was up at school and saying, like, I don't know what it is, but I am not okay. And like, we, you know, it took months for me to get a diagnosis, but that like that was the start of um, figuring it out. Because for a very long time, I always felt like something was off. I don't know if it was my bipolar, if it was my alcoholism, but either way, they played together very nicely. <laughs> so, Yeah, definitely. And I, I think a lot of alcoholics would uh, identify with the statement of not feeling okay in my skin, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that reason is. Um, yeah. So when were you first officially diagnosed? Um, I was diagnosed in May of 2010. I um, what ended up happening was I I disappeared for 24 hours and I was drinking and I ran away from home, um, which is really silly. But I include that in my story to remember where like where I really came from. But um, you know, I ended up going to a hospital to do a IOP, which is intensive outpatient program. You go there from, like, 9 to 5 and do groups and stuff. And I showed up, and the head psychiatrist told me I was going in either voluntarily or involuntarily. It was my choice, and um, I had nowhere to run. You know, I was I got driven there by my family. They were all concerned, obviously, and I just went in. And when I went in for – I was there for, like, five days. Um, <clears throat> that's when they gave me a diagnosis. And, and I was like, it was, I, for me, it was like, re- I felt relief because it was something I like could finally, like it, fi- like it was like finally, like, cause for like the 
previous year or whatever, I was trying to figure out what was wrong with me, and that was so exhausting. Um, I was seeing a therapist, you know, going to doctors. It was just really tiring. And, like, when they finally told me that, I was like, I felt relief. Like, some people don't. Like, some people hate it or they don't want to have it or whatever. But I, for some reason, was, like, happy. I was also manic. But, like, I was... I was, like, really happy that I had something I could finally, like, research and work on rather than being up in the air. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. Um, so were they, were they driving you to the IOP because of, well, obviously the disappearance, but was, was it really because of your drinking and no one really knew what the – what the dual diagnosis was or sort of did that coincide or did you get sober later? I guess is what I'm asking. I got sober like a month later. I've been okay. sober ever since um, June 19th of 2010. So I got sober pretty, you know, I haven't, I've never really sat down to look at the dates that I was actually in the hospital um, or like my records or anything, but like I got sober very soon after finally getting a diagnosis. Because I, cause so I did, knew that I was an alcoholic already, but I just yeah. wasn't willing to accept it just yet. Did it feel like you were drinking to to sort of quell whatever, uh, you know, was happening for you before you had your diagnosis? Yeah. Um, I couldn't sleep. That's another symptom of being manic. Um, you don't really sleep, so I would usually drink, like, just to sleep. Um, and like, cause in the beginning for me with my alcoholism, I would like go out and have fun, but near the end I was literally like just drinking so I could sleep cause I couldn't, I would be up all night like doing laundry or cleaning my room, like just trying to like make myself tired, but I was never tired. So I would, right. I would drink to sleep, which is common. Right. And so did you feel like but you knew your that your drinking wasn't uh normal either by the sound no. of it. Yeah. No, cuz I I I ended up um in a 12 step meeting in February of 2010. So I was I was around a lot of sober people. I was mm. mainly only hanging out with sober people. Um you know, and I would identify with them and we you know, go out for coffee, go bowling. And, like, I saw that I wanted a better life for myself through those people. And, like, even though I couldn't stop right away, like, I still kept hanging out with them, like, because I didn't really have friends near the end um, other than, like, a few that were didn't know what to do with me. And, um, you know, I just hung out with them. And, like, they, like, you know, bring the body, the mind will follow. Like I pretty much just keep kept showing up and like, I would get like a little bit of hope, like more hope. And like, eventually I surrendered to like stay sober, but you know, I just, I thought I was too young for a long time, but that was just, yeah. You know, I mean, this was, I, I feel like it's hearing your story, Megan and Jean's parts of Jean's story just now. It's, it really, really brings home for me yet again how important having a sober network of people is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And 
sharing with other sober alcoholics because everything that you're describing, they, I know that there is somebody sitting out there saying, oh, my gosh, that, I, I never heard somebody describe my story before, you know, and, and right. I just it really just brings home to me in a really powerful way. Like we have to stick together, you know, and we Mm -hmm. have to find and build and cultivate a sober network. And that's why we get brave and we share because it helps us and it helps the other person. And it's just this really great um, cycle. Catherine, this is Jean. I I just want to, this is Jean. I want to make a quick comment that, um, uh, Brene Brown is an author we talk a lot about a lot on this show, and she often uses the term bento box. You know, I, I had my life compartmentalized like a bento box, and mm-hmm. I kind of had my drinking was in one compartment, my um, uh, overachieving behaviors were in another compartment, my anxiety that I like to call my stress was in another department, you know, and yeah. I had everything compartmentalized. And I think w- once I got brave enough to start talking to people and listening and reading stories, and that's when I started to pull it all out and say, this is all connected, and these, I don't have to separate these things and try to manage them individually. It, it it's almost snowballs once you start to recognize it, and it's almost, it's, I, I, I think I've used this analogy before. It's like Helen Keller running around the room being like, what's this, what's this, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what's mm-hmm. the word for this? But how, it, I started to feel like that. Oh, my gosh, what else can I fix? <laughs> How comfortable can get with myself? And Megan, I heard you. I heard you say the same thing too. That it was a relief once you knew what was wrong, because then you could apply a solution to it. Then you could start yeah. to deal with it. And um, that's a really, it's a fabulous thing to realize you can take everything out of their compartments and start to deal with it all as a whole. Mhm. Yeah, my my therapist says it's all of a piece. Isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. So I was thinking too. This is Catherine um, Megan. What's your feeling on stigma? You know, both alcoholism and mental illness can have stigma attached to them. And did that play a role in your story and how you sought treatment for either or both issues? Um. Well, kind of like what I said earlier. Like people throw around the term bipolar a lot, and like. I don't take it personally anymore. When I was, like, newly sober, I was really, really sensitive about it. Um, I was actually told by a woman that maybe my alcoholism brought on my bipolar um, symptoms, and I'm very grateful that I know that she is not a doctor <laughs> um, because, <laughs> because, <laughs> because I've found that a lot of people have opinions and um and. I remember speaking with a friend and she was like, no, Megan, you need to, you got to take your meds. Like we don't need another, um, you know, just whatever. Like she was joking with me, but um, I just, I found that in my life, once I decided to just be open um, and when I share my story, I include my, you know, manic, you know, story. It usually makes people laugh because um, I was dressed in all yellow, so I called myself the Manic Banana, and um, and a lot of people <laughs> laugh, you know, uh, and I like to have laughter when I share, but um, I just think that I've had so many amazing moments where I've, you know, put myself out there and said, 
hey, like, I have that too, like, if I've heard it from someone else, or I'll share my story, and I'll be like, you know, I always include it, because it's me, it's part of me, and so many people have, like, I've seen, like, the light come in their eyes, where they feel comfortable, and they feel, like, it, it seems as if they're, like, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but they feel, like, more accepted because of the fact that I've put it out there that I have it. And then they come to me and they're like, I have it too. And, um, and like, it's been amazing because now I have all these friends who I know have it and we can go to each Mm -hmm. other because unfortunately, like I've, I've an amazing network. I have great best friends. Like um, they're phenomenal. Um, but sometimes like when I'm going through bipolar, like emotions, you know, they don't know how it feels to feel my feelings and like they can, they're there for me and they're really good at it. But sometimes I need to talk to like a professional or another person I know who has it because they, they, they know it, you know? Right. Um, so I'm like really open about it now. Like I just, <laughs> I don't hold back because I, I feel like it's not about me anymore and my feelings. It's about helping other people. And, right. and I, and I think just through my experience of like finding really good connections with people through sharing it, like I'm just, I'm not really afraid because I'm a pretty normal person. Like I don't do anything weird or crazy really. So like when they see that I'm like, oh, I have bipolar, they're like, oh, really? You know? So I don't know. I've had good, good moments with sharing yeah. it with others. So. And I love that you're saying that you say that, that you're, you are a normal person. We're all normal people. I mean, that's when we take out the judgment, even just around the the drinking piece of like, I'm a bad person because I'm an alcoholic. You kind of hear that a lot from people, especially in the beginning or people who are struggling with, you know, calling themselves alcoholic. It's like, no, that's just, it's part of who we are. And once, as Jean said, once we name it, we can, we can deal Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely. Um, this is Amanda, um, and I just said a couple things that thank you um, so much. I, did, I appreciate so much, Megan, how open you are with it, and it does. It helps so many people when we can share about, you know, the particular things that we deal with that other people can relate to. And um, you brought up a really, really good point and something that drives me a little bit crazy, so I just want to say this mm-hmm. for the listeners out there. Um for it, it is a good thing that we're not doctors and that the people that were in, um, say, 12-step recovery meetings aren't necessarily doctors either, or they're not our doctors, most certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, when we share about the fact that um, when people share that they may be on medication for um, uh, mental illness or whatever it is, um, every once in a while, and I'm just throwing this out there, Someone will come in and say, well, you can't do that because you're, um, you know, they they will assert an opinion on that person because, you know, it's it you know, technically a drug or whatever. And for anyone that happens to, please know that if it's prescribed by a, a physician, you're supposed to be listening to your physician. As long as you're honest with your physician that you um, are, have addiction as well so they know what not to prescribe you. Um, you know, that's who you talk to about your medications with is your physician. Um, when people um, come up to you, if if they do, um, you can just say thank you very much and politely walk away. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 that really just 
some it's just something that really bothers me when I see. It doesn't happen that often, um, but it does happen and it's you know, it's it's you know, we're not doctors. It's not up to me to tell someone what they should or shouldn't take and I never would presume to, but some people, you know, they do. So I just thought I would mention that. <laughs> Amanda, yeah, that's the same point. Are you are you referring then, Amanda, that so some antidepressants or um, anti-anxiety medications are considered to be something that a person um, with addiction should be careful about taking, and so sometimes they get criticized by other people in recovery for for their prescribed course of treatment. Yeah, well, there's right? two, there's two things. About? There are some there are some medications that are used for um, you know anxiety or depression or whatever it may be. Um, that are narcotics and therefore technically, you know, may go against the program of recovery of being, you know, having no mind-altering substances. But depending on your, if it, but um, a, probably a better scenario or to say where, um, you know, where people will, um, and it, well, I guess my point is that people shouldn't, it's up to the do- your doctor to tell you what you should or shouldn't have. But so say I had my wisdom teeth out. So let's take out the mental illness part of it. Say I had my mental, my wisdom teeth out and I was going to be potentially in a lot of pain. You would want to let your dentist know that you are um, an addict um, or an alcoholic and that, you know, you may be susceptible to becoming addicted to narcotic pain medication um, but in some cases, if you have a major surgery, they're still going to prescribe a narcotic, but they may um, have you give it to, you know, like your husband to give you as prescribed because, some, you know, um, having too much pain can also be harmful to your healing process. So I guess my point is regardless of what the medication is, you, do, you should be, um, you know, make sure your doctor is informed. Also make sure that your doctor is informed and knows how to handle addicts and alcoholics because some doctors don't. Some will just give you whatever, and you have to say, no, I don't want Percocet. I would like, you know, Tylenol with codeine or something that's, you know, which is, I think, still a narcotic. I don't know. I'm not it's a, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, a just um you know as long you know just so you do have to be careful that your doctor knows what they're doing um and that you're informing your doctor but um i guess it's when people around you if you happen to tell someone and they they stick their nose in your business it's really none of their business um but it, you know you do you definitely do want to be careful about what you take for me i was never into drugs but i would still be cautious if i was prescribed pain medication for any reason Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had yeah, to deal with that point. yet. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and, you know, the the self-care stuff is the the big thing, take, take away here is being honest, right? So, you know, yeah. you're dealing with a doctor, you're being honest with yourself, you're being honest with your doctor. Um, no, I, I think that's definitely an, an issue worth mentioning, Amanda. Thank you. So I'd actually like to to bring in the whole body here. Megan's story is one of brain chemistry, but what about changes to our body chemistry and hormone changes? Um, I, what was what movie was that? Was the woman said it's the hormones? Um, you know, hormonal <laughs> changes are, are an interesting one for for women. And I'd like to welcome Denise to the show. Welcome. Hello, ladies. Thank you very much. Hi. 
I love I all that you do. do. So thanks for having me. Hi. Thanks for being here. So I know that you experienced some severe menopause symptoms that caused you a lot of suffering. Um, and so maybe we can talk a little bit about your sobriety journey and then, you know, kind of how how the alcohol kind of played into to all of that for you. Definitely. Um well, my sobriety journey, I, when I listen to everybody, I can relate so much to your stories. Um, menopause is not a very popular subject to talk about. However, I know many women suffer from that. And I think what might have thrown me into it uh, early, I was 44 when I um, began, and I am now 58. And um, I think it was the stress of life and that of running I, and when um, Megan shared about the, the manic part, I mean, I feel like that was, I know I didn't have mania like Megan would have had, but I did have where I just didn't stop. I kept running and running. I had a cleaning business that I I ran and I still do, very successful, but on your feet all day. I raised a child and a stepchild. Um, I had a son that I had lost very young, and I lost a few family members in the meantime as I was in my 30s, my mother, my um, husband's mother, I was very close to her, and just all the things of life, that um, the knocks that life gives you. Now, when I drank um, when I was young, married, it was socially, and it was only, it was red wine was, is my glass, uh, wine of choice, and it was only a glass, and... Um, just when people came over. So I never drank alone, never drank to feel it or to mask any feelings in my my younger days. But then things happened um, when I was 48. 44 is when I started the menopause. I, I believe now it's called premature ovarian failure because I was so young and they didn't diagnose me at that time. But um, so... So I had the stress of that, which was severe, night sweats, not sleeping, heart palpitations, um, all, the, all the severity of menopause that some women get and some don't. Well, I did from the age of 44, and before that, a little moodiness, erraticness, and all that. So I was in full-blown menopause, no period at that time, and c- continued to, to lose it. Um, so then I lost some some other family members, and life got very stressful for me. And then my daughter got married, moved out, and it was my husband and I left. And to cope with the feelings that I had of depression, of all losing my son, losing my mother, all the things that life brought me, I never dealt with the feelings, and I never talked about it. I never sought help, and I buried them. The only help I... Uh, tried to seek was possibly for my menopause symptoms, uh, a little antidepressant at one point, which did not help me, and I didn't like how I felt with that. So I, I think I tried something for a year. It was Doloft, and it didn't help me. I know it helps a lot of people, but I didn't like how I felt. So I did get off of that, and um, I just continued um, being busy, and then wine started to feel better, make me feel better. Um, my husband and I made a move to a new house after our daughter left 
to have something smaller because our house was too large for the two of us, and it was closer to my work. So my business even increased more, and I became more busy. But I w- now I'm older. I'm 58, and you can't handle life as you used to. So in order to handle my grandchildren, which were my grandson's 10 now and my granddaughter's 7, in their younger days, I had to drink before they came in order to handle them. Now, this is what I reasoned in my head because they were high energy. Um, you know, they, they, there was a lot of stress for me. Um, and I had been working all week and very tired. And also, in order to do phase two of life, which is coming home, making dinner, cleaning the house after working eight to ten hours, red wine seemed like the thing to do. But it worked until it didn't work. I was 44 when I started that. Not 44. 44 when I started drinking. But when I moved to this house that I'm in now, it, it, it really exacerbated at around 54. And I drank to definitely to medicate myself. I knew I had a problem. It was affecting my sleep tremendously. And it was... Um, giving me more severe hot flashes and night sweats and heart palpitations, waking up at 3 in the morning with the anxiety, which I didn't know was anxiety, but listening to everybody and being on this journey, I see that I had it as well. But I gave it to myself through drinking the alcohol because now I I have quit. Um, oh, there, There's so many things that I've I've gone to so many health practitioners to help myself through this menopause. I did do bioidentical hormones for years. They did help me to a point, but um, then they didn't help anymore. But I do believe that the wine just threw me more into imbalance. And I drank like two to three glasses a night, sometimes half a bottle, sometimes a whole bottle, but not always. But I had to control myself because I had this cleaning business that I had to wake up for. Have I have employees, and I couldn't um, I, I couldn't function if I had a terrible hangover. So I, being the control kind of freak that I am, I did limit it to a point. But <laughs> I, I think was, if I'm I sorry, did, Denise, this yeah. is Catherine. I just was sure. thinking like, well, geez, that never stopped me. I I <laughs> all of really? my work that I've. You know, I just it got worse and worse. I I could have two glasses, and then it would just get more and more and more, and be hungover. And gosh, well, I it's, uh, I think because of um, my age, you're younger. I could handle it better when I was young. But there's something yeah. that happened when I and I hadn't been sleeping for years either, and I mean years, like waking up and then maybe getting a few hours, and it takes a toll on you. And then my heart was doing that thing where it just like pounds in the middle of the night. I'm sure other people have experienced it. And mm-hmm. it just started, I knew, I didn't know if I didn't stop drinking, I wasn't going to live very long. My mother died when she was 52. She had cancer. She had smoked all her life. <laughs> but but I, I, my mortality was in front of me. I knew that. And I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I, I did quit last year from um, January to June, and then I started again because I didn't really believe I was an alcoholic because I compared myself with others and said, well, I'm not so bad. I mean, I don't black out. I never had a DUI. However, I did drive my grandchildren at times when I was drinking. And I, if I got stopped, I probably would have, you know, so I was just lucky in that way. And I feel horrible of that. But, um, but no, I, um, 
I did control it because I knew that um, it, it was going to kill me. So I did. I quit. I'm only 82 days sober. Um, so I quit uh, again Ooh. this January. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, that's I'm, uh, yeah, there's, there's no only you. about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I'm I'm happy for that too. And this time I am going to recovery meetings, and I am doing the 12 steps and embracing all the women and the men at at some of the mixed meetings I go to. And I'm a new person because it is helping me. And I realized that I am an alcoholic, which I wasn't able to say. I I think I just started saying it three weeks ago um, before I would say, I don't really know what I am, (laughs) but, but I do know I'm an alcoholic and, um, and that's okay. You know, And, and, and I'm just like everybody else, you know, and I believe it, progressed for me i i believe that um alcohol is progressive some people can just like take off with it and maybe not stop but it took me years to get to that point and then something switched in my brain and i know that if i drink it again i i'm just going to you know go from zero to 60 again which is what happened this year when i started in june um after quitting for six months and we were my husband and I both quit together and we drank together and we were back to the races after we had started again so um but the thing is i i went on a journey of health because of my menopause and for years i have not eaten sugar or um gluten because I, okay i drank the wine that was full of sugar and that really threw me but when i ate like cake and things like that and the white flour and the gluten First of all, I had joint pain, knee pain from the gluten that totally goes away and is gone from not eating it. But the sugar threw me off like I was drinking wine. Now, I know this isn't popular. I know not everybody, especially in the beginning, can stop eating sugar, and it's actually a good replacement for wine. So I understand that. But I know there are a lot of people out there that they do express to me that that have you know, quit drinking and have been sober for a few months that sugar just whacks them out. It throws them off and it puts them back in those craving um, feelings again. And even though it is sugar, but I mean, it is very addictive. And there's um, doctors in California that are trying to regulate it and make it like, um, regulate it like tobacco and um, alcohol because it has addictive properties in our brain. And I didn't know that, but I just knew that it would throw me off. It would give me more heart uh, palpitations, night sweats, the whole thing. So that in my journey, I have to um, try to do my best to eat clean, as clean as I can and exercise. And that really helps me. And I do believe that for myself, I wouldn't be able to stay off of the alcohol if I started throwing all of those things back in my life into my life now hopefully i and i do once in a while i will have sugar hopefully someday you know i'll be able to balance everything and not even want the alcohol but i just feel like i need to balance myself and the exercise helps it helps with my endorphins and then so does um getting the sugar out of my life and the the gluten and all that you know that but that's for me what I love about the way this unfolded, this is Catherine, um, is that you're really paying attention to your body, which is something that's 
it's hard for us to do when we're drinking. So in sobriety, we can do that. And it, I love how you sort of said this journey of health. Um, I think that's important to mention how you're describing this because sometimes what I've heard people who think, okay, right, I'm going to cut out the wine and I'm going to cut out all sugar and all carbs and I'm going to exercise for six hours a day, seven days a week, and I'm going to, like, sometimes people just think they're going to muscle through this thing and they're going to fix themselves and it's going to be this big, you know, project of change. And it, I haven't really seen that work. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> no, what you're describing something that's a much more organic and gentle process and like a paying attention and a, and an honoring your body and and having it unfold and you're doing it with support. I think I just want to note that because I think that's different than sort of taking on yourself as something like a project that needed fixing. That's not what you're saying and I I I want to make sure listeners hear that. Yeah, this is Denise. I I I hear you clearly. Um it started years ago, this journey to good health, because of my years and years of feeling so lousy from the menopause that um, the symptoms and the not sleeping and the hot flashes and just all this, and, and then it threw my thyroid off and that was low and, you know, I had to go to doctors to figure that out. And so that was um, that was my journey there. And I, I listened to my body for for those years, but I didn't, really i still felt lousy i'll have to say um except that i felt better i guess i could continue with my cleaning business i could continue with the running taking care of my child um oh we there was just so much that i i had to do um that that helped me if i didn't do all that i think i would have really been in bad shape but yes for for the drinking part when i quit that I just knew from all the years that I went through of the menopause, still having these hot flashes, um, that I had to continue, like, get a little more diligent with myself that I know clearly I can't have it. Like, I I have a meniscus tear in my knee, and last year I was in physical therapy, and I, I, you know, I wasn't strictly not eating sugar for years. I I would go on at, at times when we had a birthday party, so... I went on a, a little bit of a, like a two-week cleanse where you don't eat any sugar or gluten, even the alcohol I didn't have, um, for two weeks. And my physical therapist noticed, and I noticed, I had no pain anymore. It was gone. And I have a tear in my knee that they were going to maybe operate on. And the pain was totally gone. And I I talked to my nephew-in-law, who is an orthopedic surgeon, and he said it's absolutely the gluten that will go to the inflamed area that you have in your body and um, exacerbate it. And that's if you're sensitive to it. I mean, I'm not a celiac, but oh, I'm sensitive wow. to gluten, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and so that's why it was gone. So I noticed, and I have arthritis in my right hand, really bad. I have trigger finger, but I don't even have that today. It's totally gone if I stay away from it. I've been pretty strict with it since I quit alcohol because I want to give myself a chance and I'm also doing some liver cleanses that my I have I'm working with a doctor that told me that I have a very congested liver because um of all the well, he doesn't know how much I drank, but I know it's the drinking. I know it was the hormones I was on because all of the estrogen gets processed into your liver. And um 
and then all the cleaning chemicals I used, put bleach, mm. ammonia, putting, you know, so all of that. Yeah. So it's helping. That is helping me a lot as well. So, but again, I'm not saying this to say everybody should get fanatical about it. I, I exercise only two to three days a week. I do CrossFit, and um, that's plenty for me. But if I did nothing, I think I would really feel lousy. So it's all it's all helped me tremendously. No, I I'm love just that. Grateful. Yeah. Thank I, you. I love that, and I, I appreciate you sharing all of that, Denise. Uh, sure. And, you know, it occurs to me, this is kind of for, for everybody to share on, but it occurs to me that in addition to alcohol or sugar, you know, there's lots of ways that we can numb our emotions, whether it's drinking or drugs or food or sex or shopping or gambling, just to name a few. And, and we, we've done a program on other addictions on this show. So just to, to purposes of the discussion, I'll kick it to Jean, you know, how do we avoid replacing one with another? And how do we know when something else is taking on the same addictive qualities as alcohol? Well, this is something um, that that very typically does happen. Um, sometimes it's referred to as whack-a-mole. Um, <laughs> you just get one thing under control yeah. and something else pops up, right? And I think most of us know in our hearts what our go-to numbing behaviors are we may not admit them if if you're you know where i was where if no one sees me do it it doesn't count you know but but we know what they are um so when you catch yourself doing something else too much whether that's um online shopping or whatever the, the question to ask is what's making me uncomfortable right now what what's going on here why do i need this comfort what am I trying to get away from? And I I have a little bit of a crush on Dr. Drew. So I like to imagine Dr. Drew with his silver hair, you know, leaning forward on his knees and, and, and saying to me, what's going on here, Jean? You know, what's, tell me about this. <laughs> and I can have this kind of imaginary conversation. <laughs> where I thought I can, he was my boyfriend. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> we'll fight we can share. I'm sure there's enough yeah. of him to go around. It could be it I could agree. be any you know, any celebrity that you really would love to have a conversation with. It doesn't have to be a celebrity. It could be you know, you might have a conversation with Amanda from the Bubble Hour, but really <laughs> someone that you trust that you would really like to sit down and have a one on one with who you could really honestly answer, What's going on? What where's your discomfort coming from right now? And so I kind of walk myself through that conversation and I'll be okay. Like I said, I name it and I'll say it out loud, Wow. I'm feeling really uncomfortable right now. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling um, I'm feeling bad about myself. And I try to get back to what's really going on. Because all these behaviors are a Band-Aid, whether it's um, yeah. eating, um, anything, you know, um, the dressing, dressing to the nines and going out in public and trying to get attention. I mean, there's so many ways that we try to um, give ourselves an endorphin rush. And um, so that is really the question, is just really listening to yourself and and honestly, honestly valuing the answer behind it. It does matter what you feel. It it does matter what you do, even if no one else sees it. If you're feeling it, it's real. And I think that's step number one to, to self-care rather than yeah. self-medicating. And this is Catherine. I feel like Denise spoke really powerfully of that running 
that just, yeah. I, I think a lot of people that I identify with that so much. And I think a lot of people are probably saying, gosh, yeah, me too. You know, just mm-hmm. the running with all kinds of life things. Um, does anybody else have any thoughts on, you know, that, that guacamole? Um, this, this is Denise. If I could just say that I am now sleeping much better and I am, I do have less hot flashes. So quitting the alcohol was number one, and it is really helping my health. And and I'm, I just feel so grateful to be on this path and to be able to start to really calm down and look at myself and realize all the things that you guys share in these shows, that you need to take a breath, that you need to, you know, uh, find out who your true, true self is, um, just the whole thing. Everything that you share on these shows are just beautiful and i i love that you have this forum and that everyone can listen to this and learn so um just anybody out there that is struggling please know that it really does get better i mean i have some of these symptoms but not like i did when i was drinking the i, I don't wake up with a panic at three in the morning and um yeah. i feel i feel I, I sleep deeper so it's definitely coming one thing that wine did do though another thing and i forgot to mention it threw me into pre-diabetes and it doesn't even run in my family my sugar is high but that's i'm working on that and my doctor thinks that we can get that under control but yeah it so drinking does not it's not good (laughs) it doesn't help us it doesn't do a body good it's not helping (laughs) no No, that's that's absolutely true yeah um i i will Um, say i'll just um go ahead amanda Oh, oh go ahead i can i can talk after you no, no, keep going. Uh, I was, I was gonna say, um, <laughs> uh, um, well, uh, uh, there were so, so many things that that was just said. But um, one thing, um, I love how Denise, you've like stepped through the different things that you've, you know, eliminated from your life. And I can, I can tell you, um, you know, for me, I definitely picked up ice cream when I put down alcohol. And um, it was a real challenge for me. And, uh, I, I mean, every, I'm talking every day for two and a half years, um, mm-hmm. having ice cream and excessive amounts. I mean, people would make fun of me because you'd open my freezer. And I have a freezer in my refrigerator and a full one in the basement. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, but I just just really took it to an extreme. And um, But I did give myself a break. And um, I was well aware from the different programs that I went to that you can pick up other things. And, you know, being very self-aware of if you're being extreme about anything in your life, um, that's, you know, if you're being extreme about something, even it can be a good thing. It can be exercise. But just being Mm -hmm. aware that, okay, you know, I am, this is a replacement behavior. This is, you know, um, uh, what are they, how do they say, outer reach for inner peace. Um, and just being aware and, you know, that you're not really dealing with the issue, even if it is a positive thing that you're doing. Someone even asked that question today, is it okay to be addicted to exercise? And the answer is yes and no, um, because, <laughs> yes, it's great that you're into exercise, but the no part is are you dealing with the issues that make you need to, you know, bury your emotion in exercise? So. That that's just one thing I wanted to add there. But then I can tell you on um, with the sugar thing, I did when I finally decided to deal with my sugar. 
Um, or just, you know, I, I had gained a little bit of weight over the winter, like 10 pounds. It wasn't a big deal, but I it bothered me, and I really wanted to do something about it. So um, there was this program that my friend had suggested. It was a 30-day cleanse, basically, and it was no gluten, no dairy, and no sugar for 30 days. And I did drop eight pounds, which I don't, you know, and then I, you know, within the next month I dropped another five, and that was actually too much. Um, so, you know, I had to regulate a little bit. But um, I can tell you that do it was really hard to do, eliminating the sugar. I can tell you eliminating dairy and gluten and sugar, those three things from my life, I felt tremendously better. Um, mm-hmm. I have managed to work. Um, most of that back into my life to some extent, except for gluten. I, I've, I've kept away from gluten to the mo- for the most part. Um, I do allow myself some ice cream, but I can tell you when I allowed myself some ice cream, that was all the proof that I needed that I am an addict through and through to the core, absolutely. <laughs> no doubt. It started out with small amounts, then the amounts grew, and then I was making excuses, and then it was like, then I would binge. I mean, it it was that I I never need to pick up a drink to know that I would be off and running like just, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but witnessing I like I was I laugh at myself with ice cream it's absolutely ridiculous like and I and I play the same game that I did well before I started thinking about well you know I'll only I'll only have it on the weekends you know <laughs> I'll only have the I rationalize ice cream. <laughs> And you know, this is yes. Denise. That, that that's so important what you're saying, um, Amanda, because as alcoholics, we are addictive people, and we already know the addiction of alcohol. But the sugar actually is acts like alcohol because it gives us the cravings. And I know people will say, you know, just if you're a cocaine addict, just stop stop taking the drug or an alcoholic stop drinking and sugar my grandson i think is addicted to sugar and that poor boy I mean, he is overweight and he can't stop and he now he's at the age he's almost 11 where he's embarrassed and i'm sure he's going to someday get a hold of it but he can't control it and it is like a drug to him and uh, what's a drug to anybody really and it becomes a vicious cycle where you, the more you eat, the more you want, then you start to crash, then you need more, then you get depressed. And, uh, you know, it really is a physical thing. So that is something that maybe people can be aware of that, sure, it's much better than alcohol and go for it in the beginning if that's what you need to replace to, to get you going, you know, get you off. But it it definitely is another addiction, you know, and it's good well, to, is, um, to be yeah. aware of. I mean, this is Catherine. I think this is why it's really important that establishing a program of recovery, including having a network and a community of sober people around us is really important. So as we start, you know, whacking at all the different moles that might pop up, we should, you know, really have those tools available to us, um, and I also thought I would just mention here that we we did a show about pause, which is post-acute withdrawal syndrome. That is just I want to mention it in case people who are listening didn't hear it. So right after we get sober, we go through acute withdrawal symptoms, but then as our bodies and brain chemistry heal, we can go through a kind of pro- protracted stage of emotional and psychological withdrawal symptoms, and those can include mood swings, anxiety, irritability, tiredness, variable energy, low enthusiasm, 
variable concentration, and disturbed sleep. So those things all sound like a lot of what all of us have described here tonight. So um, they may crop up with, you know, just for different uh, in different degrees in people, and I just wanted to mention that that that's something that can happen irrespective of your your body or brain chemistry um, as you're entering recovery. So we are sort of a little over our time here, and I just I'm thinking it's such an amazing experience in recovery to meet people who are fully engaging in life and finding ways to live fully and healthfully. And um, I, I just want to thank everybody. So maybe in closing, have, what's one piece of advice or closing closing thought that each of you have on tonight's topic? So, um, Megan, starting with you. Um, I was actually thinking about that while I was listening. Um, I think, like, don't give up. Like, if anyone's listening and they have a mental illness, they have anxiety, they have alcoholism, addiction, whatever, all the above. Um, don't give up on yourself. Um, like, there's so, so many ways of helping yourself, and there's so many ways of people to help you, especially in 12-step meetings or through therapy, whatever. Because um, I feel like, and also don't be ashamed of what you have because, God made you that way for whatever reason, you know, like sometimes I question it, but like, hey, like I am who I am and um, and just especially don't give up because I know there's been times where it seemed a lot, you know, to have bipolar and it, it bugs me every, very rarely I'll be upset about it, um, but I still, you know, I still suit up and show up for life even if I'm bothered by it, so that's all I have to say. Uh, I love and, that. And- yeah, that's beautiful. This is Denise. Um, but first, I want to say, Megan, um, you're amazing, and you're going to help a lot of people. So keep on Thank you. what you're doing. Yeah, it's, that was it's beautiful. Your whole share and very brave. And um, and I agree with what you said. Reach out to other people. Don't be alone. I was isolating near the end, as outgoing as I am and as 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 a go-getter as I was all those years, I found myself wanting to just be home after work, alone with my wine and um and and all my darkness that I didn't that I buried with the wine. And now I'm I'm talking, I'm going to these 12 steps, I'm meeting so many people, uh meeting the BFBs, listening to these podcasts and I'm learning so much and I feel like I have a new <laughs> awakening now. So it does get better and you can find ways and be patient with yourself and um just listen, you know, keep keep going back, listening, researching, reading these books, beautiful books that everybody is suggesting here and um and it will get better. Life gets better. So that's that's my advice. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Amanda, how about you? Um, yeah, a couple things um, come to mind. Well, one thing I was going to say, um, well, echo what everyone else said, but the recovery community um, is so important because one thing I think people should be aware of and we've talked about on here is don't be surprised when you stop drinking if other issues pop up um, because right. you may not realize that you've been self-medicating all along. Um, I didn't really share about it. I've shared about it before, but ADD is something that I have or whatever you call it, ADHD. I haven't actually ever been officially diagnosed, 
But um, I didn't realize until I stopped drinking how much I was um, self-medicating by um, drinking kept me focused. And without, when I first stopped drinking, I had a really hard time focusing. And I still, I still struggle with it a little bit. And, um, and but it's not, you know, nothing worth picking a drink up over. But it was, it, you know, I recognize now that. Drinking did play a part in controlling that, and so it's it's something that I have to deal with on a regular basis. And I have other tools that I use to to focus myself. Um, and I'll, I'll do it mid sentence. <laughs> I'll go completely right. off track. And um, but I think so. You know, getting back to the recovery community, anything that comes up like that, anything that you're experiencing that you find very abnormal, share about it at a meeting. Someone will identify with you and have something to share that will help you. You know, they may talk to you after the meeting um, or something, but, you know, that is, you know, a huge benefit of going to meetings. It's like free therapy. Um, You know, you're going to find other people that can at least get you going in the right direction and understanding what's going on with you because we go through tons of changes especially in early sobriety. And um, also when you mentioned the pause, the the pause symptoms are something that they say um, pop up at three years to two months, but also any time um, when we are experience a lot of stress in our lives. So those those things can pop up if we're not taking care of ourselves. Um, so I just thought I'd mention that. But this has been an awesome sh- show, so thank you. Thank you, um, Denise and Megan, for coming on tonight. And this is just Thank you. really great all around. Absolutely. Thank you Jean, for having us. Jean, how about us. you? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I'm sitting here quite amazed that I just announced to the whole world on, uh, you know, an international podcast that I have OCD and general anxiety disorder, and the roof did not cave in on me. I'm quite shocked <laughs> by this. Uh, this, is, this is, I really thought that a lightning bolt would strike me dead if I ever publicly acknowledged this, and by golly, I'm still here. So, um, you know, acknowledging things is very powerful, and and sharing with others is, is very freeing. I think in my excitement and, and um, panic and fear of of talking about OCD, I failed to mention the term. If anyone is listening and you want to learn more about that, the the term is dermatillomania or triclotillomania. There's a great article on thefix.com about addiction and OCD, and I highly recommend starting there if someone wants to look into it. My parting words would be, just because you've hidden it from the world doesn't mean it hasn't really happened. So be rigorously honest with yourself and value yourself enough to care that, enough to know that if something is happening in your body, in your mind, in your life, even if you're hiding it from the world, it matters and, and it's real. And you can find healing when you identify it and get honest about it. Wow, I just want to give every single one of you the biggest hug and I I am so honored to to be here with all of you and and thank you all for your honesty and for sharing your experiences and strength and hope. Um thank you. It's helped me a lot tonight. Me too. So thanks, Catherine. As, yes, thanks. As we close yes, the you. show tonight, I'd like to direct our listeners to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org, and there you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now, 
and links to some of our other initiatives around recovery advocacy. And if you'd like to go directly to the Bubble Hours website, that is thebubblehour.com, and there you can listen to our shows directly from the website, or you can follow a link to subscribe to our podcast. On behalf of Amanda, Jean, and myself, Catherine, we thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour and hope you have a great evening. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.